you ever won a trophy? Ever won a trophy? I may have shared this story with you before, I don't know, but but when I was in graduate school, um, I pray, played a couple of years in the seminary golf tournament. It was a, a two-man team, and I played with Dr. Forshee, one of my professors. The first year we played in the tournament, we came in second. Missed the putt on 18 to change that, but it just happens. And, and then the second year we played, though, we won. So first year we came in second. Second year, we won. So as we came to the end of our round, Dr. Forsey said, hey, I'm going to have to leave like as soon as we finish. I won't be able to stick around for the trophy presentation. I said, all right, that's fine. And, and I knew we were both going to get trophies. So I said, look, I'll stay, be a part of it, and I'll drop yours off by the house. He said, all right, sounds good. So I got the trophies, and, and man, I'm cruising down that country road, and I am full of myself. Oh, man, gosh, I'm playing we are the champions on the radio the windows are down i mean it's great i i've got uh, dr forsey's trophy wrapped up in a golf towel sitting in the floorboard of the back seat and mine is sitting right over there in the in the passenger seat in the front and boy i'm just i'm looking at it. oh man man we won man, i mean i with all the arrogance in the world i am full of my trophy glory kept looking at that trophy kept looking at that trophy and in one of those split seconds when i looked off at the trophy sitting in the seat i looked back up and there right in front of me was a huge yellow dog right in the middle of the road. That lab was pretty old. He looked at me like he didn't care that I was there and just slowly kept moving. Of course, I had to slam on brakes to make sure I didn't hit him. And then he just looked at me and just slowly made his way across the road. And so I hit the gas after he left and started driving down the road and just happened to look back over at my trophy. And guess what? It wasn't in the chair anymore. My trophy was in the floorboard, and it was not in one piece. It was in several pieces. And in that moment, as I looked at that broken trophy, the first thing that crossed my mind was having breakfast with my mom. Now, why in the world would you think when I saw a broken trophy, I thought about having breakfast with my mom? Well, every morning at breakfast when I was growing up, my mom would always read Scripture to me or quote Scripture to me. And one of the ones that she quoted many, many, many times was Proverbs 16, 18, Pride cometh before the fall. Well, that's what happened. I was full of pride, and my trophy fell, and it broke. So, kids, listen to your parents. Sometimes it'll save your trophy. You never know. Just pay attention. Just pay attention. Sometimes in life, trophies break, right? Some of our, our trophies in life break. Some of the things that we prize the most get destroyed. Some of the precious things in life are taken away or destroyed or lost. So what do we do? Well, what do we do when the, the precious things are taken away? What do we do when the prizes are gone? What do we do when our trophies are lost? Let's see if we can find out. Lamentations chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things. Before World War II, the city of Warsaw in Poland was 600 plus years old, had more than a million people living inside of it, and it was a city that was full of rich culture, rich history, fantastic architecture. It was, it was an amazing city. But the Nazis systematically burned and looted and bombed and destroyed the city of Warsaw. Imagine it's January 1945. 
you're up in the, the tower of St. Augustine's Church in Warsaw, and you're, you're looking out over the rest of the city. What you would see is that 85% of the city was gone. 85% of the city had been destroyed. There were buildings all around St. Augustine's Church. I mean, just like anything that we would see in downtown Columbia or any downtown that you've ever been, there's plenty of buildings. And there were buildings surrounded that church, but in January of 1945, it would have looked like St. Augustine's church was built out in a field in the middle of nowhere. An aerial view, it looks just like that. It looks like a church is out in the middle of a field because all the buildings are gone, destroyed. Jerusalem was a great and holy city. People traveled from all over the world to go enjoy her culture and her architecture and her food and, and everything else. It was a, a great, fantastic city. And then 586 years before Jesus was born, the city was destroyed. It was left in ruins. It wasn't a tornado or hurricane or natural disaster, an earthquake. No, an, an enemy army came in, invaded and took over and destroyed the city. The book of Lamentations is a book of, of poems lamenting what happened to the city, crying out to God over what happened to Jerusalem and really what happened to all of the nation. A book of poems crying out to God in lament, and lamenting would be, as we've said in recent weeks, turning to God, complaining to God, asking God and trusting God, a, a full throttle turn to God. To lament is to turn to God in all things. When you lose precious things, when the precious things are gone, when the trophies break, when the prizes are lost, you turn to God. You turn to God with everything that you have. This is the first poem, and, and it's a lamenting almost from the outside looking in. It's like you really are up in the tower of a church, and you're looking out over destruction. You're, you're seeing this, this box of ruins, this box of rubble. And, and from the outside looking in, you're seeing that the rich and precious history, the, the culture, the architecture, all of it is gone. All the things that they prized, all the things that were precious, all of their trophies have been taken away. And they were left really as, as homeless refugees. And, and that's the scene. The trophies were destroyed. And the poem continues, verse 7. All her precious things that were from the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the adversary, and no one helped her. This poem is remembering the good old days. It's remembering all the, the great things that they had in the good old days, but then the good old days stopped immediately. The enemy came, and, and all of the alliances and all of the friends that, that the city and the country thought they had, those friends didn't show up. They were left alone. They had no help. No one cared. Ever been there? Ever had a moment in your life, maybe you had it this past week, where you felt like nobody cared? Nobody cared, nobody paid attention. Nobody understands what you're going through. Listen, I can't force you to believe this, but I, I can at least share it. God cares for you. God cares for you. 
He cares for you so much. He prizes you so much. He loves you so much that he gave his only unique son to die for you. He gave Jesus to be a, a substitute for you, a substitute for the penalty of sin so that you could be rescued and redeemed. You could be set free from the curse of sin. And to be set free from the curse of sin only has one demand. And that demand is simply this, to believe in Jesus. To believe in the truth about Jesus. To believe in the story about Jesus. But to keep believing. To keep trusting in. To keep relying on. To keep clinging to Jesus and the story of Jesus as your first and most and best truth. What you believe in the most is Jesus. It's okay to believe in a lot of other things, but what you believe in the most is Jesus. First and most, it's your belief in Jesus. First and most, it's clinging to Jesus. It can't be first and most clinging to your family. It can't be first and most clinging to your job. It can't be first and most clinging to your money or to your country or to your favorite team. Those things are not forever, but Jesus is forever, and Jesus and only Jesus has made the way for the curse of sin to be lifted from your life. God cares for you because God sent Jesus for you to deal with the curse of sin. Sin has one destination, death that lasts forever. Salvation in Jesus Christ has one destination, life that lasts forever. God cares. So if you're looking for help, if you're looking for true, real, lasting help, then turn to Jesus. Follow him and live. Verse 7. The adversary saw her and they mocked at her ruin. Don't you hate when the other team wins and they rub it in your face? I mean, isn't that just the, the worst moment? To expand on the queen to central philosophy as shared earlier, if you were to do an opposite, the opposite of we are the champions is another one bites the dust. And, and that's what's happened in this scene. Jerusalem is no longer the champions. The church is no longer the champions. They're in the dust. They've been defeated. Why? Why? Verse 8, the poem continues, Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. There's one message that we will hear over and over and over again throughout all of these five poems, and that message is this. God's people ignored they had the opportunity to turn to God, but they did not turn to God. They went to church. They proclaimed to be one nation under God, but they were not turning to God. God was not first and most. The grace and the providence of Almighty God was not in their head. In fact, when the rubber met the road, when you looked at how they were actually living in their daily life, they were living as if they had built built their nation and they had built their government and they had built their economy and they had built their culture and their society and they had built their army and they had built everything for them by them and for themselves and from that standpoint what they did is they looked out and said look don't lecture me if I choose idolatry don't tell me that 
that it's bad for me to dabble in the idolatry of material possessions or financial gain. Don't tell me it's wrong for me to dabble in the idolatry of retirement worship or vacation worship. Don't tell me it's wrong to to dabble with the addiction of of food or drugs or alcohol or sex or, or fitness or video games or political news or social media or anything else. Don't tell me what I can and can't do, especially you, God. I'll see you on Sunday, but leave me alone the rest of the time. This was the church. This was the people of God. This is how they functioned. About 950 years before Jesus was born, God sent a message to the people, and the message was this. If my people will turn to me and pray. God didn't send a message that said, hey, if the conservatives and the liberals and and the terrorists and the team captain and anybody else you want to put in the list and the political pundits, he didn't say to everybody. His message was, if my people will turn to me, then I will heal their land. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't turn to God. What he was looking for his people to do, the ones that, that claimed to be his and to be his followers, he was looking for them to turn to him, to complain to him. Not constantly to social media. To complain to him. God said, turn to me. Complain to me. Ask me. Trust me. This has always been the message. It's never changed. And guess what his people always do? We hear the message. Sometimes we listen to it. Sometimes we don't. And what is God gracious to do? He just keeps giving us the message. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He goes, turn to me. Turn to me. Complain to me. Ask me me and trust me it was his longing so so where are you turning first and most these days i mean really just think practically the conversations that you'll have today at lunch or or tonight at dinner or tomorrow morning at breakfast or with people at work or or with people you talk to on the phone people you're texting with what is that place that person that thing that you're turning to first and most these days I'm going to tell you something. It's not confusing. I can have five minutes with you, and I know who you're listening to the most. And guess what? You can have five minutes with me, and you'll know who I'm listening to the most. We aren't hard to figure out because it comes out of our mouth, right? Where we're listening and the things that we're listening to. So what are you listening to the most? Where's your first and most? Is it, you know, the news? Is it social media? Is it it your social life? Is is it your opinions? Where's the, the first and most? See, the message of Lamentations is this. When you lose your precious things, when the trophies break, when the prizes are lost, the best, most satisfying thing you can do is turn to God. It's always the message. It never gets more confusing than that. God cares for you. He sent Jesus for you so that you would turn to him. And the point continues, verse 8. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. 
I was listening to a podcast this week on Family Life Today uh, entitled Seeking a Spouse. And when I finished it, it's about 24 minutes long. When I finished it, I immediately sent it to everyone in my household. And I said, there is something in this for every single one of us. Really, really listen to it. It's, it's just really good. One of the things they discussed was the sometimes unhealthy attention that we put on looks when seeking a spouse. You know, the idea of, well, how pretty is she? Well, how cute is he? You know, and that's fine. That's not totally unimportant. But this is one of the things that they kind of said. It kind of came out like this. They, he said, when my kids are throwing up in the middle of the night, I don't need my wife to be pretty. <laughs> in other words, there's this picture of, of when we make a commitment to a covenant marriage, when we make that covenant vow, looks are not what we always need as the years go on. We need something more than that. These verses here in verse 8, they make me feel like I'm at a high school reunion, right? The prettiest girl, the cutest boy, they're not so pretty and cute now as they were back then, right? They, they may have lost their looks a little bit, so things are a little different. At one time it was, oh yeah, this is what it's all about, but, but now things are changed. And you almost get the feel with this last part of verse 8 that it's the pretty girl or the cute boy, and they're at the reunion, they're standing in the lobby of the gym, they're looking at the mirror at themselves going, man, things changed, you know? And maybe they've lived a, a foolish, hard life, and they're asking themselves, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing? The people of God, it was like they were looking in the mirror, and they were thinking, what have we been doing? Why, why did we say we believed in God, but we weren't really turning to Him? What are we doing? The poem continues, verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. You ever had parsley in your teeth and you didn't know it and everyone else did, right? You know, you're sitting there and a bunch of people are talking and you got some gunk right up there and, and you're just talking away and everybody knows it. And then finally the, the real friend goes, dude, you got something in your teeth, you know. But it's that awkward feeling of, oh, something's wrong and you don't even see it. You know, you have no idea it's there. I used to have this tie. I really loved this tie. It was, it was my special event tie. You know, if I had to speak at some special event, I, I just really loved it. And so I'm at some special event, and I spilled some kind of sauce on the tie. I, I've learned now, just a little tip for you guys. If you're somewhere fancy and nice, and you've got a fancy and nice tie just take the top button, just unbutton it real quick, and shove your tie down in there. It'll protect it all night. It's a good thing. It's a little thing I wish I would have known before then. But the reality is, I had this stain on my tie, but it was on the bottom part. And I loved this tie. So I just started buttoning my jacket, and I kept wearing the tie. You know, nobody could see it when my, when my jacket was buttoned. But of course, there was the one time I forgot to button my jacket. And somebody was like, oh my goodness, you have this huge stain on your tie. And then it was like a 15-minute conversation. Everybody in the room had to talk about the stain on my tie. God's people had a stain on their tie. They had a stain on their life. And the stain was they were living in pride. They functioned in pride. They, they were not functioning and living in the grace of God. And they were ignoring God. They were refusing to turn to God. And they acted like that stain wasn't there. They just kept buttoning their jacket. But then an enemy came in and stole their jacket. 
And then they saw the stain, and the stain became all the more real before their eyes. She wasn't thinking about her future. She wasn't thinking about what was going to happen to her when she died. And she wasn't thinking about other people. She wasn't thinking about the whole of the city or, or the country, or the community, the nation. She wasn't thinking about the people that were going to be there long after she was gone. She wasn't thinking about the generations to come. She was only thinking about herself and only thinking about what she wanted. Friend, if we're not careful, we will sound a lot like the people of God before Lamentations. Not thinking about others, not thinking about the glory of God, not thinking about having to serve others, just wanting what we want when we want it. Wasn't a good pattern for God's people back in the day, and it still isn't. And what did all that thinking get her? Look at verse 9. Therefore she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. This, this was Jerusalem the great and holy and powerful city of Jerusalem. This was the great and holy and powerful kingdom of Judah, and they fell. No one in the known world would have ever seen that coming. Not, not in a million years would they have thought that Jerusalem and Judah would fall. It was astonishing to the people in the town, the people in the country, and the people in the world. And why did they fall? Because God's people refused to turn to God. It doesn't take away the, the, the power or the sin of the invading nation. It's just that throughout Scripture, what we see in the Bible, what, what God made sure was written down, was that he kept saying, if my people would turn to me, if my people would turn to me. And the people just kept turning to everything but now the poem takes a twist here and the next part of verse 9 the city decides to cry out for herself she decides to lament for herself verse 9 see O Lord my affliction for the enemy has magnified himself so they're destroyed they're being mocked and, and now in this moment finally they've decided well, we need to turn to the Lord we need to turn to God we need to complain to God we need to ask God and we need to trust God. So they've turned because the precious things were gone. The prizes and the trophies were gone. So they're learning to turn to God. And they said, God, help us because our enemy is, is magnifying himself. How did he do that? Look at verse 10. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom you commanded that they should not enter into your congregation. It's estimated that hundreds of churches were bombed or looted or, or burnt or destroyed during World War II. At the very least, 25 of those churches never opened up again. They were destroyed forever. You know, we have a super nice campus. I mean, we really do. I remember riding through this campus many years ago. All right, funny side story. So we were on our way back from the beach, and I had just heard about Holland Avenue through 
George and Rosalind Smith, some, some former members. But just to give you a time frame, if all my math's right, this is three years before anything happened with me coming to be your pastor. So it's really weird how God's math works. But like three years before there was ever a conversation, um, George and Rosalind told me, you know, that, that Charles uh, had retired. So <laughs> I decided on the way back from the beach, hey, we'll just, you know, we're going through Columbia anyway. Let's just go right by the church. So we pull up in this front parking lot. Well, first of all, I have to tell you, so I pulled through the back parking lot, and of course my first thought was, man, what a great parsonage behind the church back there. It's, it's not. It's, it's the Bingham's house, but, you know, they're great neighbors. So, uh, But anyway, so we kind of circled the church. So all my kids are in the back, and, you know, they're doing whatever they were doing, playing games. I think we had TVs on the seats or something. But so we pull up in this front parking lot, and... Bailey is doing some math, okay? Bailey, I don't know, goodness, she would have been, I don't think she was 10 yet probably, but she's doing some math. She goes, hey, Dad, why are we at this church? And I was like, ah, we're just, we're just right. Hey, you know, we're going over to Zesto to get shakes. That's why we're here. I just, you know, I know somebody that goes here. I just thought I'd circle around. So Bailey was doing some math, and she was like, are we leaving our church? So always be careful when you circle a church with your kids. You never know what's going to happen. Um. But the reality is we have this beautiful campus, and I remember seeing it the first time that I pulled up. And, and for more than 60 years, generation after generation of this church has made sure that this campus is still here, glorifying God, encouraging believers, and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus. I've often said, if you see a Southern Baptist church that's still doing really good right now, look to the senior adults in the mid-80s. Because the senior adults in the mid-80s said, you know what, this is not a country club. We want to see what we can do to serve the Lord. And consistently, if you look at senior adults in the mid-80s that said this is a country club, those churches are fading or closed. But the ones that are alive are the ones where the senior adults said, you know what, we're here for the next generation. So I'm excited, a little commercial over the next few months, we're going to be looking at what we can do for the next generation, looking at this end of the building, how we can renovate it and, and update and do some things to make sure that we can keep it moving forward, that we have the privilege of being a part of helping the people that will be at this church in 2071. I mean, that's fantastic. That gets me excited to know that when I'm with Jesus for more than 10,000 years and don't even know time and space, that there may be the gospel here on this campus continuing to reach people for Jesus. However, the building is a building. It is a campus. It's something that God gives us to use. And we have to always remember that this building could be rubble by tomorrow. That doesn't make us feel good, but it's true. It's a fact. But God's people, they went to church one Sunday, and then the next Sunday, the building was gone. We see this with earthquakes. We see this with hurricanes and tornadoes. We've seen it in war before. So we praise God for the building, but remember God's people had a really nice building, but they didn't have a good church. They had a fantastic campus, but they, they weren't a healthy church because they were saying they believed in God, but they weren't turning to God. So praise God that in his kindness and his grace, we have a great building and we have a great church. God is continuing to be gracious to Holland Avenue. The people had a great church, but they were ignoring God. And the enemy closed the church. The enemy took all of the church's precious things and leveled it. And what happened to the people of the church and the city and the nation 
after everything crumbled. Verse 11. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. They had to sell their trophies, their silver platters, their jewelry, their, their limited edition rookie baseball cards. I mean, they had to sell everything that they owned just to get some food. That, that's how desperate things had become. They were lonely, they were desperate, they were desolate. Ever felt that way? Ever felt lonely? Ever felt desperate or, or desolate? Again, the poem takes a, a turn, and the city is crying out to the Lord. Verse 11, See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Ever felt that way? Ever felt despised by your friends? Ever felt despised by your family? Ever felt rejected by someone that you didn't want to reject you? Ever felt alone and desperate, despised, rejected? Ever been there? I often share thoughts with you about Vanitha Reisner. Her life has, has been one of suffering and pain. She experienced the, the loss of, of her two-month-old son dying. Not long after that, her, her husband left her and their daughters. And now she has a debilitating disease that she really just doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but it gets worse and worse and worse. Last month, she was writing about a friend of hers, and the friend's mother has been suffering with Alzheimer's for, for a long time. It's at the point now where the friend's mother doesn't recognize the father. She doesn't recognize her husband. In fact, most days, she thinks her husband is some kind of thief and some kind of robber. So what does the husband do? This is how Benita describes it. When that happens, her husband speaks tenderly to her, then he holds her and dances with her, whirling her around as he once did, all the while whispering, remember. As he restates his love for her, she calms down. He reminds her of their life together. He reminds her of their happy memories. He reminds her of things long forgotten. And then from deep within, she recognizes that she should not be afraid. She knows that she is safe. And then Amitha goes on to say this. How do we find hope in the middle of our stories? How do we keep going when life feels relentlessly hard? Her answer, we hear God whisper again through his word, remember. We turn to God when we are in unfamiliar territory, afraid of the future, and we ask him to help us Remember. Remember. Are you in some unfamiliar territory this week? How about I'll just say we all are because we have no idea what the news will be tomorrow. We have no idea what the news will be in an hour. We need to remember. But what do we need to remember? When the precious things of life are gone, when the trophies are broken, when the prizes are lost, what do we need to remember? I never tire of hearing this story. John Newton, who's famously known for writing Amazing Grace, wrote lots of other hymns and was also a pastor. When he was well past retirement age and he was still preaching on Sunday mornings, he had to have a helper with him on the pulpit. 
One Sunday morning, John Newton was preaching, and he said, Jesus Christ is precious. And his helper leaned in and said, Sir, you've already said that twice. And Newton turned back to him and very loudly said, I know I've said it twice, and I'm going to say it again. And as the story goes, the church shook, like when Stacy's playing the organ. The church shook as John Newton loudly said to the congregation, Jesus Christ is precious. What do we need to remember when the precious things are gone, when the trophies are broken, when the prizes are lost? We need to remember this. The prize is Jesus. The trophy is Jesus. The treasure is Jesus. The most precious thing in the universe is Jesus. And God sent Jesus for you. For you. So if you have Jesus, you have what's most precious. And that cannot 